1: Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.
2: You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause.
3: I'm Liv, lover of myths and often angry feminist. I mean, I'm always a feminist, but I'm not always angry. Thank God. This week, I bring you a very special episode. You see, July 20th was the one year anniversary of this podcast. One year ago, I decided I wanted to talk into the void about how crazy the birth of the gods was and how awful Zeus is. I've been utterly devoted to Greek myth since I was a kid, but studying it in school, and frankly for fun, has given me not only a whole new appreciation for the minds of the ancient Greeks, but also a mind-boggling realization that Zeus, the man we all know and thought we loved, was outright horrific. And well, I just wanted to talk to you all about it. I didn't know you then. But I knew I wanted to talk to someone about it, and thankfully, you all found me. Since the purpose of this podcast began as a way to introduce the lunacy of Greek myths that is glossed over when you learn it in school, and quickly turned into an examination and rant-filled look at the patriarchy of both ancient Greece and our current world, I thought I would turn to an incredible female-centric story from these ancient and magnificent people. And so, I give you... Episode 35 When Women Revolt, Aristophanes' Lysistrata Aristophanes was an ancient Greek playwright. He wrote comedy, topical, political, and satirical comedy. He offended those in power, and he entertained the masses. He's one of the few Greek playwrights whose work has survived up till now. Eleven of his 40 plays have survived, and that's a lot for an ancient Greek playwright. Much of the time he was writing, Athens and Sparta were at war. It's more complicated than that, but this is the salient point. The two main city-states of Greece were at war. War that had been going on for a very long time. Decades. It's called the Peloponnesian War. Our story, or rather Aristophanes' story, opens in the midst of that seemingly endless war. In Athens... There's a woman named Lysistrata, and she's waiting on the arrival of other women. Many other women. She's put the call out to the women of Athens and Sparta and all the surrounding city-states. As many women as they can muster, and they're meant to meet with Lysistrata. She has a proposition for the women of the warring regions. Before we go much further, I should mention that the name Lysistrata means liquidator of armies. That's right, liquidator of armies. What a fucking badass name. Even more fascinating than that, at the time that Aristophanes was writing this play, there was a particular woman in Athens. This woman was the top priestess of Athena, the patron goddess of the city. This made her the most important and most famous woman in the city of Athens. And her name was Lysimachy. Lysimachy means liquidator of battles. So, though it's not explicit, I think it's pretty fucking safe to assume that some of this character that Aristophanes wrote was actually based on this real, and I would like to assume very badass, female. How fucking awesome is that? Okay, so Lysistrata is in Athens and she's waiting on the other women. At first, Only her friend Kalaniki appears to have shown up in response to Lysistrata's call for females. But slowly but surely, more women begin to arrive. Women from Athens, and from Corinth, and from Thebes, and even from Sparta. Women from all over Greece arrive to speak with Lysistrata, and to hear whatever it is she's proposing. She gets right to the point. Lysistrata asks those women how they've been affected by the war. How long have their husbands been away? Don't you miss them when they're gone? The women all have similar stories. Their husbands have been away forever and it's really been putting a damper on their lives. Though, specifically, their sex lives. It's been so long since many of them have had sex. This is even where I learned that the ancient Greeks were apparently happy to discuss the use of dildos. Though we learn that, unfortunately, those have even been hard to come by. Life has been fucking tough. Lysistrata asks the women what they would do to end the Peloponnesian War. What lengths would they go to to stop all the fighting and the dying? Think of this in the way that the Vietnam War affected America. Too many people they knew were dying, and what was it all for anyway? The women all agreed that they would each do an awful fucking lot if they were able to end this war. There's a consensus. They'd all do an awful lot if they could finally help to end this war that has gone on for far too long and has kept these women's husband away from them and their beds far too many nights. Lysistrata has brought them there for this reason. She has a proposition, an idea for how they could end the war. The women should withhold sex. This was all too much. It was too much, even for the women who had just told Lysistrata what they were willing to do in order to end the war. One woman had claimed she was ready to cut herself in half like a flatfish. But no, this, this idea of withholding sex, too much. The women weren't willing to go as far as denying themselves sex. Let me also just pause for a moment to tell you how much you should read this play. What a work of art. A masterpiece. How did I not know that there were Greek plays out there where women talked about how much they loved sex? How amazing is it that these are female characters that are talking about how unwilling they are to give up sex? Not because it would offend a man or cause them trouble in their marriage, but because they themselves love sex too much, they can't give it up. It's fucking awesome. Even the ancient Greeks understood that women also enjoyed sex. What happened in the intervening thousands of years to fuck up that understanding so royally? Oh, right, monotheism. But I digress. The women assembled to speak with Lysistrata give varying levels of detail on how much they love sex and why they're not willing to give it up. In the translation I'm reading, Lysistrata even throws around the word nympho to describe the reactions of these ladies at the very idea. It's awesome. At one point Lysistrata proposes the ladies just use dildos instead, but one of them is very adamant about how that just isn't good enough. Lysistrata isn't having any of this denial, though. She knows that this is the solution, and she's ready to convince them. She calls to their egos, pointing out that these reactions are just what is expected of them, but they should push past it, because they're strong. She uses reverse psychology, essentially, and they begin to be convinced. The first to come to her senses is Lampito, the main Spartan woman who's been a part of the conversation thus far. She speaks in a weird sort of accent that I don't totally understand and that doesn't sound like it could be Greek, but who knows. I guess they're trying to portray Sparta as a foreign place? It's working. She's hard to read. Anyway, Lampito finally agrees to Lysistrata's plan. She wants peace, and if this could work, she's willing to try. Slowly, the others begin to come around too. It's decided that the women will occupy the Acropolis in protest. This is where all the city's money is kept, and the women figure that the only thing that could stop their protest from being entirely successful is that the men will still have access to all the funds of the city. But if they occupy the place in addition to their sex-related protest, they're golden. Lysistrata explains that while these women have been discussing their plan, there is a group of older women who are working their way towards the Acropolis under the pretense of sacrificing. They'll then prepare it to be occupied by these outspoken and angry ladies. But before they can set out, Lysistrata decides that they must swear an oath to solidify this agreement. And so they do, and it includes stating that not only will they not have sex with their husbands, but they will not have sex with their husbands while simultaneously wearing the sexiest clothes and makeup, which is just a fun addition. And on top of that, the oath includes something that is translated as the lioness on a cheese grater position in reference to sex. So, you know, so many questions there. There's a shout in the distance, and Lysistrata confirms that this means the other women have taken over the Acropolis. So it's time for these recently oathed ladies to join them. This is, of course, a play, so the next thing we know, the ladies have entered the Acropolis and shut the door behind them. (laughs) Once Lysistrata and her band of sex-denying women have closed themselves up in the Acropolis, we get our first glimpses of some of the very few men in this story. The chorus is a staple of ancient Greek plays that I'm sure I've mentioned before. The chorus is in most, if not all, Greek plays and essentially acts as a kind of explainer and sometimes a judge of what's happening. It's a group of people who are not singled out as individual characters, but that add to the story and act as an important counter to the main characters of the play. But in this case, there are actually two choruses. The first to appear is one that consists of a group of old men. So now, the chorus of old men appear. They're super old, and I mean visibly. They're having trouble walking, they're using canes. The audience is very much supposed to understand that these dudes are about as ancient as the culture I'm talking about. The men complain a lot about the women and what they're doing. They pointedly exclude them from Athenian society in their phrasing, even though the ladies are in the temple to Athena, who's a woman, and most of the rites of the temple in Athena herself were performed by women. But this is very much a statement on women in that time and their importance in relation to their actual worth, which spoilers were not super connected. The women were necessary for everything that made Athens, Athens, but they certainly weren't considered as such. But thankfully, after the initial complaining of the grouchy old men, there's a whole comedic setup where the men can't get a fire lit properly and keep getting smoke and ash in their faces. It would be very funny to watch. (laughs) Meanwhile, another group of women is making their way to the Acropolis to join the others. There's a woman that's heading that group, but it is otherwise going to serve as the chorus. The counter to the men's chorus. As this group of women approaches, they see ahead a lot of smoke, and they worry that these crazy old men have lit the place on fire, and that their friends are in danger. The women spring into action, and carrying pitchers of water, race as fast as they can to the Acropolis to rescue the others. Of course, when they get there, they see that these useless old men have only just gotten their torch lit, and in fact, the reason there's so much smoke is that these dudes couldn't figure out how to get a fire going. The women are ready, though, and totally down to fight these old men, which is just a super fun part of the story. They put down their pitchers of water so that, if it comes to it, they can really swing. The two groups exchange very fiery and ancient threats of violence. The men threaten to set the women on fire, or if not them, then their friends inside the Acropolis. The women realize that they have the upper hand here, and they simply pick up their pitchers of water and pour them all over the men, who, sputtering angrily, complain about how wet they've gotten more fiery and entertaining words are exchanged but before much more can go down a magistrate arrives with some policemen and without noticing the women or the men simply has a bit of a soliloquy about how annoying women are in general the old man complained to this magistrate about how the women poured water on them and the magistrate proceeds to become an incredible source of comic relief by in his view detailing all the ways men spoil women into becoming awful people Really? Well, this is where I'm going to quote a little. In discussing the ways men pander to women's so-called vices, the magistrate details some examples he has of this pandering. First, he notes a moment when he went to the shops and spoke with his local goldsmith. He told the man that the pin in his wife's necklace had slipped out while she was dancing, so, quote, "'If you've got time, could you go over to my place and fit a pin in her hole, please?' Or when speaking to a shoemaker with a, quote, great strapping organ about fixing a strap on his wife's sandal, he asks, quote, Could you go over around lunchtime, perhaps, and loosen it up? Make the opening a little wider? <laughs> I guess I just thought that the ancient Greeks would have been a bit more prudish, especially given the way we hear about their treatment of women and myths and other sources, but fuck, this is a lot of obvious and hilarious innuendo. Like... Maybe look a little closer at your relationship with your wife, Magistrate. I think she's uh, doing things you don't know about. The Magistrate, entirely oblivious to the information he's just disclosed about his own marriage, threatens to pry his way in to get at Lysistrata and the other women. But before he can go ahead with anything, she comes out and threatens him. He brings forward one of his policemen before an old woman comes out to defend Lysistrata. Lysistrata. This escalates each time an officer comes out, so does another angry old woman, until the magistrate has no more policemen. Finally, the magistrate realizes that he's basically screwed here. The little old ladies have got him, and he's got to negotiate with Lysistrata, or at least pretend he's open to negotiation. Lysistrata is quick to explain the women's position, They want to stop the war, and they're going to do it by denying sex and keeping track of the Athenian money themselves. Seriously, could they have picked a better way to get aristocratic men to sit up and listen? No sex and no money for your war. They've barricaded themselves in the Acropolis to defend the city-state's money and prevent even more corruption in the war effort. Because, spoilers, sounds like wars have really been about money since the very beginning. The magistrate, of course, questions the women's ability to keep track of the money. Those ladies can't keep track of money, that's a man's job! Though Lysistrata makes the very fucking smart point that these women are taking care of the finances in their own homes. Why the fuck wouldn't they be good at taking care of the finances for Athens? The dickish magistrate continues to fight with Lysistrata, whose point is essentially, we're trying to save you from war and death. And his point is, of course, you can't do that, you're a woman! To which Lysistrata replies, quote, We're going to save you whether you like it or not, because she's a badass. Lysistrata continues, making the detail and magnificent point that these women have stood back on the sidelines and watched the men do whatever they were going to do for so long. They watched the political decisions they made, and they had their own opinions, but when they dared to voice them, they were shot down. But they're not doing that anymore. They want to save their men and themselves, and they're going to do it their way. Finally, she says that it's the men's turn to listen. The women will force it if they need to, but they'll be listened to because their ideas are good. It's the men's turn to shut up and sit back.
1: Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.
2: You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Don't forget to pack the melt in your mouth magic of a Keebler Sandys to steal a moment for yourself before the week ahead. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So, as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandys. Lysistrata and the magistrate
3: continue their argument. The magistrate's opinion isn't changing, but Lysistrata just keeps making brilliant point after brilliant point. She's defending women everywhere and how they've been affected by this war, not only because their husbands and sons are away, but also because there aren't so many women who will never have the chance to marry because of the deaths of all the men. And she says, of course, these women aren't just affected in their sex lives. They'll get no freedom and no homes of their own unless they're able to marry. And besides, she says, the women are getting older and the men that do survive will instead be happy to find a younger woman. A generation of women is being created that will forever be a second-class citizen, that is, a second-class citizen by comparison to an already second-class citizenry, that is, women in general. Eventually, the chorus of women and Lysistrata begin taunting the magistrate. The chorus begins to sing a song, which is a thing that choruses do and together they deck the magistrate in funereal garb as if he's dying. It finishes with Lysistrata singing a section of an incredibly translated song. Quote, so why do you wait? You'll make Sharon wait. Last call for the next boat to hell. What a song. What a translation. Now, of course, Sharon is the ferryman that drives you across the river to the underworld, so he's who you'd be concerned with if you're anywhere near death's door. Finally, the magistrate leaves, and the women and Lysistrata head back into the Acropolis. They leave behind another woman who's been a big part of this exchange, Stratilus, and the two choruses. The male chorus, well, the male chorus claims that their freedom is at risk and determines its solution is, well, it's to strip off a layer of clothing and do a dance. I don't totally understand it, but I do appreciate the sentiment. So, the men's chorus strips off their cloaks, and dances and sings. Their song includes a claim that what the women are doing is an anti-democratic plot, and that they will resist to tyranny, which is obviously what's going on here. Withholding sex to end a war is definitely both of these things. In response, Stratilis and the women's chorus decides that they too will strip off a layer of clothing. That seems only fair. They follow this with fighting words of their own, before Stratilus begins a speech. She tells the men assembled, and importantly, the audience watching the play, that regardless of their gender, these women have as much a right as any to make these points about the society they're a part of. They may not be respected as men, and they may not be permitted to take place in city duties as the men are, but they are as much a part of Athenian society as anyone else and they've been watching. They've been paying attention as the men fuck everything up with war and corruption. They've watched as their tax dollars have been squandered and their freedoms taken away. As the war goes on and on for no good reason. These women have been watching, and they've been paying attention, and they are fucking sick of it. The fact that this was written in ancient Greece when women were exactly this, that they had no rights at all, and they couldn't do anything. They just, you know, were a huge part of the society and super important and vital to everything and yet had absolutely no freedom or agency of their own. The idea that a male playwright actually recognized that and wrote about it is so thrilling to me. It gives me some faith in ancient Greece. The men's chorus's response to this? A quick quip, and then a call to remove their next layer of clothing. Their tunics this time. That's what's coming off. So of course, the only logical next step for the women is to do the same. They remove their next layer of clothing, leaving them naked in front of the Acropolis, having an angry, naked song, and dance fight with the men's chorus. This is a comedy, after all. After more naked singing and dance fighting, the women gain the upper hand, and the men retire to slightly offstage where they just hang out like weirdos and watch. It's about this time, though it's not entirely clear in the play itself, the few days have passed. The women are still holed up in the Acropolis, holding out against their men. Lysistrata comes back out from the Acropolis, but she's a bit stressed out now. She watches out from the hill. Stratylus asks her, what's up? What's the problem? And Lysistrata tells her straight up, we ladies need a fuck. They use the word fuck in this translation. Ironically, or maybe it's not true irony, the women's chorus responds with a cry of, Oh Zeus! Which Lord knows isn't the dude you want to talk to about fucking because he will fly straight down and be in and out in the form of some animal or another before you even know what happened. Lysistrata explains to Statilis and the women's chorus that the ladies are inside of the Acropolis and have become super hard up. They're trying to sneak off, they're coming up with all these crazy reasons why they need to head home to their husbands. One woman even pretends to be pregnant, even though Lysistrata notes that she wasn't pregnant like a single day ago. Seriously, they're all really horny. It's turning into a real problem. Finally, after more innuendo filled back and forths between the two choruses, we focus on a woman's husband who's arrived to try to convince his wife to leave the Acropolis and head home. He arrives in front of everyone with an enormous hard-on. It's in the stage directions. Enormous erect phallus. And he seriously wants his wife to fuck him. He's even brought their baby in an attempt to convince her that she's needed at home. Marine, whose husband this is, decides that not only is she going to continue to hold out, but she's going to royally fuck with her husband, who's constantly discussing how he's permanently hard and it's super uncomfortable. And have you seen his giant hard-on yet? Marine pretends she's going to sleep with him, that they just need to find a good spot. And then they just need to find a bed. And then they just need to find a mattress. And then they just need to find a blanket. And then they just need to find a pillow. And then they just need to find some perfume. And then, well, then she just disappears and leaves her husband with his giant swollen penis. Marine's husband is still complaining about his ouchy dick when a herald from Sparta arrives. Curiously, this man also appears to have a telling bulge in his pants. This will become a trope as the story continues. After exchanging a number of clever dick jokes that are still funny today, the two quickly realize they're in the same boat. And they make the connection that it's not just women in either city-state that's withholding, but instead, these women are working together. Quickly, both men determine that they're more than willing to give in to these women's demands because goddamned, they need a fuck. Marine's husband quickly sends the herald off to discuss this with his Spartan leaders, promising that he'll do the same for Athens. They'll quickly work out the best way to completely give in to the women's demands because, again, they really need to fuck, and at this point they're basically willing to do anything if it means they can have sex again. Both men leave, and once again the two choruses are left to their own devices. But you see, now that these two men from Sparta and Athens have determined their predicament, and realized how easy it will be for them to get this shit over with, everything seems to fall together quite smoothly. Both choruses, after a little more complaining about the opposite sexes, determine that ultimately, as they say, you can't live with them, can't live without them. And the two kiss and make up, literally, and become one big chorus of men and women. Things are coming around. A delegation of Spartans appear. They too are sporting giant hard-ons in their tunics. And a delegation of Athenians shortly after with the same telltale bulges. The two groups discuss. The same stories are told. They all want sex. None of them have women who are willing to have sex with them. Life is hard. Literally. Literally. Let's make peace. Ending this year's long war is 100% worth it if it means we can have sex again. So with that out of the way, they call Lysistrata out of the Acropolis. They're all willing to discuss a plan for peace. Again, because they're horny, and that's all that matters. Shortly after, Lysistrata calls out a woman from inside the Acropolis. She calls her Reconciliation, and she's a personified form of exactly this. Around her, and it's sometimes straight up written on her, they plan out how they will get to a peace deal between Athens and Sparta. The two sides discuss what they want and what they're willing to give up. Of course, Lysistrata is the mediator, pointing out when one side is being particularly pig-headed or unreasonable. And in the end, they just want sex. So both sides are able to come to an amicable agreement on what land and what things each side will get in exchange for peace between them. There's a nice song, they sure did love to sing in ancient Greek plays, and eventually Lysistrata walks out carrying the Aegis shield of Athena, and looking very much like Athena herself, as she appears triumphant. Her crazy plan of withholding sex from men having 100% worked. In fact, it's suggested that Lysistrata is very much intended to be like Athena, if not Athena herself, throughout this. There's many references to Aphrodite at all, but few to none of Athena. It may be that it was Athena who planned this, even if it is entirely out of character for her to side with women in any substantial way. Regardless, though, we're giving Lysistrata the credit here, imagining that she is her own woman and a mortal woman at that. She succeeded. It was hilarious and awesome. The wives walk out from behind her, and she motions to each group to return to their husbands. The chorus even couples off, and together they all have a nice little dance and a song. Everything is well, and the men have proven that they're willing to do anything, just so long as they get to have sex, whenever they want. And, in conclusion, I'd like to share one final tidbit. All Greek plays were performed by men. Those who were playing female characters were dressed as women. So, yes, that means that all of this took place with a stage full of men, and doesn't that make it funnier and a bit more ridiculous? You're welcome. So, why did I choose this story? Beyond the fact that I think it's a goddamn outstanding concept to cover women with little to no political or social power using the one thing they have, sex, to get exactly what they want. But I'll admit, I've known of Aristophanes since my undergrad, and I've heard of, simply, the Lysistrata. It's only of these words that I knew, and I knew it was a Greek play, I knew it was ancient, and I knew that I should read it, but it's really hard to get around to reading Greek plays in translation just for the fun of it. One day, in my Twitter wanderings, let's be honest, my thirst for depression and anxiety, I saw that, if only in certain corners of the internet, a half-joke, half-serious hashtag of Lysistrata2018 had popped up. Some women, I assume mostly tongue-in-cheek, were suggesting a modern-day Lysistrata protest in an attempt to rein in some of the fucking madness going on in America. I realized in that moment that I didn't know the plot of Lysistrata, or what it meant to be suggesting such a thing right now, so I googled. And then I realized I was fucking crazy if I didn't do an episode on this play. And then I started reading it and realized how much my life was missing because I hadn't up to that point read Aristophanes' Lysistrata. It's such an incredible commentary on the Greek world. Like they realized that this was crazy, that the women had nothing, even though they were super important. Like someone realized it and wrote about it. And he wrote about it in a way that is so satirical and so truthful and so crazy, so over the top, but so clearly makes the point he's trying to make. It's amazing. Honestly, there's so much I couldn't include. It's such an incredible work. But also just this idea that women weren't actually in plays, and I mean, I'm not 100% sure that it applied to simply the Lysistrata, but last I learned, it was all plays, there were no women. And so they're making this super political, super important point about the importance and power of women in Athens, and yet at the same time, there are literally no women on stage. It's so good, so ironic, so ridiculous. The edition I'm using is by Penguin Books and is translated by Alan H. Summerstein, and it's great. It's a rare find when a translation can be entertaining and readable and also include much of the original pace and even rhyming. The chorus is translated wonderfully, where you still get a sense of the sing-song nature of their role, even in the English. I'd highly recommend it, not only because it's a good translation, but also because this play is fucking nuts and actually so funny and so entertaining. There's so much I wasn't able to include because I'd just be reading you guys' a list of entertaining lines and I really shouldn't be quoting directly very much because of copyright and whatnot. There's also so many visual aspects. The sheer number of references to erections is incredible. I can only imagine how hilarious this would have been to watch on stage. I'm incredibly impressed that the comedy holds up so well even now. I mean, I was laughing out loud, like quite a lot. So anyway, you should just read it and then let's talk about it because it's great. Thank you all for listening. You're the best. And thank you all for joining whenever you did, or to those who've been around from the beginning, also a big thank you. I'll let you know that I'm currently working on releasing the first newsletter, so if you're interested in receiving that, you should head over to my website, mythsbaby.com, and sign up on my homepage if you haven't already. It will include fun myth facts, book recommendations, any relevant information I've come up with lately, and straight up fun shit from me. Let's be honest, you all want in. Also if you're a subscriber in the $5 and up category on Patreon, I'm planning my next episode and there's currently a poll up asking what movie I should watch and discuss next. It's tied right now, which is supremely unhelpful to me, so please head over there and vote. And as usual, follow me everywhere, rate and review on iTunes, I love you all. I'm Liv, I love this shit.
2: You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. (sighs) Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies to steal a moment for yourself before the week ahead. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies.